like, I literally, I almost said, did you skip the medicine day at medical school? Like, what are you, t- like, like, I don't understand, like, I don't understand why you think this is, like, not a big deal. everybody and welcome to let's pod this my name is andy moore and i'm joined not in studio but joined via video chat by dr scott nelson hello sir what's up man and bailey perkins hello ma'am hello everybody bailey threw the deuce but you guys can't see that because we're on video chat and you're not things you wouldn't do in person normally right throw up the we're uh, practicing social distancing that's right yeah so this is the, I guess, our first episode since the coronavirus, COVID-19 epidemic has has truly gripped our country and our state. You guys, man, what what a hell of a week. Wednesday night was a doozy. Yeah, it's, you know, I, uh, we were, we were talking, you know, before we kind of got started here, um, you know, probably, probably 10 days ago, um, I was at like, you know, two two out of 10 on my level of concern uh on the anxiety scale yeah i've been uh i've been steadily steadily creeping up and that's been the case with you know most of my colleagues that i talk to in terms of just man how uh what is like how how bad is this potentially or you know how bad do we think it's gonna get and i think most of us are pretty concerned that at least it it could it, it could get pretty bad um hopefully it doesn't but it could. Right. Yeah. I, um, yeah, it's been wild. And even, you know, I've talking to my, uh, former colleagues at the infectious diseases clinic at OU. And, um, I know you have as well, Scott, and their level of concern has increased. Right. And what we yeah. said last week, I think was that, you know, it's, it's hard to make a educated decision with, with inadequate or data, the, the data we haven't had so far, but now we've got another week's worth of data and, from both from the U.S. and from other countries, right, and not just that early data that was bad out of China, but good data out of China, also Italy, um, South Korea, Japan, yeah, and so I well and go ahead, Andy. You mentioned Wednesday, and the reason Wednesday was a doozy for Oklahomans is because prior to Wednesday, yeah. there were no cases of the coronavirus in Oklahoma, at least confirmed cases. Mm -hmm. Um, And the NBA um, was in Oklahoma City. So it was the Jazz versus the Thunder at the Chesapeake Arena. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of the players um, had been exposed to it, but didn't believe that he really had it. Um, But traveled to Oklahoma City before he got to the arena, was tested um, here in Oklahoma City and was confirmed to have coronavirus and then also one of his uh basketball colleagues has coronavirus as well from being in close contact with him and so now that has raised the attention for oklahomans because that makes three cases confirmed so far in our state one that was first confirmed in tulsa Mm -hmm. last week i believe Mm -hmm, and then mm -hmm. now two here in oklahoma city yeah and what is arguably the worst the worst example of jazz hands I think I've ever seen is when he touched all the microphones. Oh, <laughs> On Monday, so he touched, so he did a television interview um, with different reporters and journalists um, who cover sports for 
um, the NBA and he went through. So Rudy Gobert, Gobert yeah, something like that. Yeah. Uh, went through and touched all of the journalists, microphones and things um, in an arrogant way of trying to be funny saying, I don't have this disease. It's not a big deal. <laughs> Touching the microphones. Um, and then two days later, it's confirmed that he does have coronavirus. Right. So. Well, and that's exactly why we are here doing our social distance podcast recording. That's been very effective, I think, um, at trying to um, trying to isolate ourselves, but still, the show must go on. So, um, I don't know about you guys, but I, I think you know we've seen this week, and as as we relate this to politics, uh, I saw yesterday that the U.S. Capitol was closing, the Supreme Court building was closing, um, the House and Senate office buildings were closing um, in Washington as they take precautions, which is uh, smart. I mean, Congress is full of older Americans, which are at higher risk um, in many ways. And Do we and know from a off policy. the top of our head just to what is – so it's, uh, it's, it's the president and then the VP, then Speaker of the House. Yeah. No, Secretary of State. Speaker of the House is third, then yeah. Secretary of State, yeah. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then uh, who's next? Because, like, they're all, like, 75. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's <laughs> going to have to uh, get that chain of um, succession really lined out here. But here at the state level, uh, they so we had a couple of, um, I mean, obviously press conferences this week following the Thunder deal and the NBA canceling their season. There's a press conference I know uh, we've seen from Governor Stitt and Lieutenant Governor Pinnell and uh, Oklahoma City Mayor Holt. Everyone's kind of posted on social media about the re- the response, um, Commissioner Gary Cox, and it sounds like, and I think this is the case everywhere, right? That that Oklahoma, as of right now, doesn't have as many tests as we would like to have. Um, the other day, Commissioner Cox said they had the capacity at that time for about three hundred tests, but more supplies were arriving every day. Um, and I think today we've seen a lot of reports on social media, for what that's worth, of people who felt like they needed to get tested, but weren't sure if they would meet the eligibility criteria uh, or the guidelines from the Department of Health. And so it sounds like testing has not been widely rolled out in our state yet. Well, and there's been a lot of um, rising, um, how do I phrase it? I think the, the administration and our federal leaders are really starting to take this more seriously. Yeah. Um, it was announced earlier that um, the president was going to declare a state of emergency to be able to activate the funds that they pass. I believe they pass about $8.9 billion more in mm-hmm, funding mm-hmm. Um, to be able to get down to um, states and local governments to be able to do more control over um, getting testing out, helping um, health providers and building this infrastructure to better be prepared for um, this epidemic or pandemic. I'm sorry. Yeah. So, um, so we'll see what happens when those funds trickle down to see if that leads to, more testing, um, more efficient capabilities to be able to know. Uh, Because there's a lot, like you mentioned on social media, there's just a lot of conversation about are there cases, are there not cases? Um, 
what's the official test, where they are. And so this will help to get more structure to be able to help mitigate um, the risks that are that we're expecting. Yeah. So I think it's safe to say that Oklahoma is basically shut down. Most, most of America is, right? Like um, the, the events we've seen that have been canceled already. And, and I'll say now, um, you know, we were in the midst of planning our let's fix this capital day for this year. We're going to have only one because of the uh, construction at the Capitol. It was going to be April 1st, but we made the call yesterday. Like, you know what? Uh, let's go ahead and cancel it. We don't want folks feeling compelled to get out when they shouldn't. And even even if we kept it going on, I think it would be um, very poorly attended for everyone else who had a, a the right idea to stay home and, and to try to just ride this out. The more that we do that, the more that we isolate and um, quarantine ourselves. Scott coughs in the middle of this. Um, that we. I've been coughing for like the last month. I've been coughing. It's I've been coughing ever since I had the flu. It really is. It really it, is, though. It is unfortunate that this happens in the middle of Oklahoma's like peak allergy season. Um, also, at the end of flu season, there's lots of lots of uh, agents in the air that are affecting everyone. So. Um, anyway, so our capital day is canceled and, uh, and I think pretty much every other event in the state has been canceled. Um, Bailey, uh, do you want to speak to anything that the food bank is, is canceling doing or not doing this in response to this? So Oklahoma food bank, well, regional food bank of Oklahoma, mm-hmm. particularly, uh, is shutting down the volunteer center after Saturday, mm. um, just to monitor what's going on. The organization is fighting hard to balance um, the safety of our staff and volunteers um, while being sure that we can be available to meet need in the community. Uh, We know that with the growing um, concern with the uh, coronavirus pandemic, uh, that means there's going to be more demand for um, the services that our partners provide across the state. Um, And our partners rely on us to get that food to them to be able to take care of families in need. And so um, we are um, day by day thinking through um, what needs to happen um, for us to be able to continue distribution, but also keep our our staff safe. So there's some internal practices that we are um, putting in place, though we're encouraging staff to practice the social distancing, Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. not be in spaces and meetings that have more than seven people and things just to make sure that um, our staff is um, healthy and safe um, because we won't be able to do our jobs if, if staff aren't aren't healthy. And so uh, that's what we have so far um, on um, the website, um, rfbo.org. Or if you live um, on the eastern part of the state, okfoodbank.org. Dot org. Um, there's a list of our partner agencies that are on those websites to where people can find out where they can go should they need food. Uh, one of the great things that I get the question often is what's going to happen to kids? Should school shut down? Because many of them are going to spring yeah, break early. Yeah. Um, the great thing is that um, the Oklahoma State Department of Education has applied for several waivers that would allow the state to be able to still serve kids and um, do it in a more targeted way to make sure that no kid goes hungry um, during this time where there's no school. Because we know that many of our children um, depend on that meal that they get uh, for breakfast and lunch at school. And so there's some opportunities uh, once those waivers are approved 
uh, for schools to still be able to get food to kids, even though schools are out. Right. Yeah. I think the only, you know, I would just tag, I would tag team on that and say that I just can't emphasize, I can't emphasize enough how important it is that people take this seriously. Um, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a ton. um, I'm not seeing a ton of folks on, you know, social media or, you know, in my kind of personal spheres of people saying like, oh, this is just an overreaction. This isn't a big deal. Still a little bit, but not nearly as much as probably, you know, maybe 10 days ago. Um, But this is, it isn't, you know, we're seeing like, you know, meme accounts that are doing, you know, you know, making, you know, making jokes about social distancing. No one's saying like not to do it, but you're seeing people kind of, um, you know, like put, uh, you know, wearing like, these suits that they've made that you know, have arms sticking out in all directions. Right. And those things, those are funny, but like it, it cannot be overstated. Like social distancing, keeping yourself um, away from other people to the extent that you can, just you, your family, whatever that looks like for you. That is really something that has the potential to save lives. Um, and it's really the best hope that we have at this point to try and slow, not stop. We've passed the point of stop, but slow the spread of what is a pandemic disease. The the situation, you know, we were talking before the podcast and Bailey, you told me I should say this on the show, you know, so the American Hospital Association, the American Hospital Association is telling hospitals and healthcare providers that we should be prepared for or, you know, anticipate something on the order of about 98 million, 96 to 98 million infections in the United States. One, that's just a lot of people. Now, as we've talked about before, it is still true that most people who get this disease will probably be only mildly ill. Mm-hmm. Most people mean, you know, 80% of people will be only mildly ill. Let's say that 5% of people who get the disease have to go in the hospital, okay? That's 5% of 96 million is what? About 4.8 million, 4.8 million people that need to be in the hospital. Well, as of today, according to the American Hospital Association, um, the total number of staffed hospital beds in the United States is 924,107. So it's 924,107 hospital beds for about 4.8 million people who need them. Mm, And that's just related to coronavirus, not any other... Not um, anything else. And then not only that, not only that, but on any given day, only about 35% of those beds are available, right? Because they have patients in them with other things. So that's, you know, roughly speaking, about 325,000, 325,000 hospital beds available for a coming slew of 5 million people with coronavirus. Of those 5 million people, probably about a million are going to need intensive care beds. As of today, intensive care beds are 97,000 776. So that's about a hundred thousand ICU beds for a million patients that will need them. Yikes. So, wow. and then if you, <clears throat> if you factor in a case fatality rate of 0.5%, which seems potentially even a little bit optimistic, honestly, a case fatality rate of 0.5% would lead to about 475,000 deaths. So one way to think about this is what we're looking at is maybe about a hundred people who get sick. But of that, Roughly 5 million or slightly more than the population of Oklahoma will be sick enough that they have to be in the hospital. Of those 5 million, about a million will probably need an ICU bed, roughly the population of Oklahoma City Metro. 
Imagine the entire Oklahoma City metro needing to be in an intensive care unit. Yeah. Then, and about 480,000, or about half of those people, at serious risk of death. Wow. Like, those are the numbers that we're talking about. And because we don't have testing capacity, which is an extraordinary policy failure, but that's another discussion for another time. <laughs> because we don't have testing capacity, we can't identify, like, hotspots where new infections are coming up, mm-hmm. right? It's really tough to isolate. So we have to try and slow the spread of the disease by isolating everyone, essentially. Like everyone has to stay kind of within their little circle of life and not do anything that's not really necessary. And that's not going to stop this from going through the country, but the hope is to slow it down so that all 5 million of those people don't show up at the hospital on the same day. Right. Right. Um, And this, by the way, is not theoretical. Um, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to try and terrify people by just sitting here and reading the Twitter feeds of intensive care doctors that are working in Italy. But um, if you've seen any of those reports, it's bad, guys. Like, it's real bad. Um, and we're starting to see some real bad cases in Seattle where the disease has been in the community for at least the last six to eight weeks. Um, so I'm I think that there's reason for optimism. Um, I think that we might have a higher degree of immunity in the communities than we think because the disease, I think, has clearly been, clearly been circulating for several weeks. But we, if you're waiting for a moment to kind of like break the glass and take some serious steps, I would say we're probably at the break the glass moment. <laughs> like the cancellations, the staying home, these things are completely appropriate. Right. And that's all the doctors, for the most part, that I have spoken to about this are in agreement. Well, and and that's the whole thing, right? Like we've all, by this point, I think we've all seen the chart on social media about how to um, flatten the curve, flatten the curve, right? And so I I think that is um, really helpful, and I think it illustrates that that there's going to be X number of infections in the country, right? We can try to minimize that, but there's still going to be a lot of infections, and it's there's going to happen, and it's yeah, it's going to happen. It is in your communities everywhere now, and it's going to happen. So you can minimize your risk, right? And you can try to keep yourself safe and healthy, and other people, right? So even if you don't get you know critically ill you could still be carrying it around, right? And this is this is why, you know, many communities, uh, Los Angeles, in fact, today, canceled school, all the public schools, because even though kids are like lower at risk for death and severe things, we all know they're little vectors running around, right? And so they're at grandma's house. Um, you know, they get it. They get it from, Billy gets it from his parents. And then he goes to, to Johnny's house and then Johnny takes it home and his grandma's there and then grandma's in the hospital, right? It's, that's how it can travel. Yeah. Um, not by any fault of anybody, but that's just what happens. And the, um, and so taking those steps is how we mitigate the spread, um, canceling things, how we mitigate the spread and also how we slow the spread so that we don't overpower the healthcare system. And we give a chance for people to get into the hospital, get treated, get out of the hospital and make room for somebody else rather than everybody surging all at once. Well, and I'm also glad that, Scott, you mentioned briefly the importance of policy decisions because what we do um, in policy helps us prepare for these moments that are inevitable. So there are always moments when different um, challenges that are coming our way, whether it's for like 
weather-related emergencies or health-related, public health-related, you know, emergencies. We're having the infrastructure to help people in these moments. So I'm thinking about um, Medicaid expansion. With the passage of that for the future, we'll have more people who have the opportunity to be covered. Um, we'll have the growth of more hospitals um, yeah. developing to be in communities, to be um, available to have more beds for folks in these moments. Um, there's conversation about the need for um, paid sick leave and paid family leave because there's a lot of people in this pandemic who don't have the ability to be able to take off work and do that social distancing because they could lose their jobs and not be able to provide for their families. And even businesses are trying to have the conversation. I was talking to someone yesterday about um, the concerns about how do you work with temp workers and hourly workers mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and being able to um, document, you know, their work, um, but also giving them that time, even though like it's, it's, it's a big challenge right now. Um, so it's, it's important that thinking about this in a systemic way and in a policy level helps us to prepare in the future. So we don't feel like we have to panic and we have the systems in place to be able to protect people in a large way. Right. And I will, I will say, as we are recording this on Friday afternoon, uh, the president is is speaking right now and has just declared a national emergency, Absolutely. And, uh, which we I think kind of expected, right? But uh, and we're a little surprised it took this long. So as you know, as let me get my words here, as is the case with other um, emergencies like this, the declaration is not just symbolic; like it actually signifies that. Um, by doing that, it means that certain rules can be relaxed and it gives agencies some flexibility to respond in ways that they might not otherwise be authorized to do, right? And so we can move a little quicker. And I think a lot of folks will say that um, this is late coming. Um, apparently, they are also uh, giving $40 billion in emergency funding um, to help have this come out. Um, well, one reporter said $40 billion. Someone, another reporter said 50 billion. It's a lot of billions. Um, and, uh, and so anyway, getting that out there, um, that this allows states then to respond. It also frees up money for the states to do things like buy more tests and, um, maybe relax the rules for their Medicaid program to ensure that more people will get covered so they can get tested. All these things. This is a... So the emergency declaration will free up Medicaid funds because the Trump, because previously the administration, yeah, there was a headline that, you know, in the LA times today saying that they were blocking it, which is like not really what's happening. They just hadn't proactively reduced the rules the way that like the Obama administration and the Bush administration had, um, in previous natural national disasters. So will declaring this emergency, is that, will that free up those Medicaid dollars to be used more flexibly? That's my understanding based on what I've read um, so far, but I guess, I mean, this is literally, it is 2.35 uh, p.m. right now as, as he's speaking, um, and it appears the president does not have like a teleprompter, and so he's kind of um, trying to find his words as well, uh, and that's, I think, leading <laughs> to some confusion among reporters that are watching it and trying to and trying to tweet it. That's crazy. Well, there's been a lot of, mm -hmm. <laughs> there is um, a lot of growing pressure from 
um, governors and mayors, particularly of larger cities, um, adding that level of of pressure to the president to, to make this announcement because many communities have already declared states of emergency so that they're able to accept those funds and move quickly um, with this pandemic. And so I'm glad to see that the president is, is responding accordingly and now states can really get to work in the way that they need to. Has the state of Oklahoma already declared emergency? Has governor Stitt said that, or do we expect that to come now? I think that'll be coming. It hasn't happened yet. Uh, I believe Dallas County did last night in Texas at like 10 o'clock. They had their, uh, they had their first case of, what appears to be a community transmission, meaning this is someone who tested positive for the disease right. that did not have any known risk factors. Right. Someone who didn't like visit Italy or China or somewhere recently or have direct contact. Yeah. Which that's an important thing to put at this point. You know, I think at this point, you know, if you've been to an, to a, to an area that's known to be endemic, that's important. But as of right now, this, according to the CDC, according to the CDC website, 46, I think, out of uh, 50 states have documented cases. But uh, literally right before we uh, started recording, I was on a conference call uh, for healthcare providers in the hospital folks with uh, the CDC, and they actually used the figure 49 out of 50. So Mm -hmm. I don't know if the website, if there's been some more presumptive positives since noon, which is when they updated the website, but it's, we know it's in Oklahoma. You know, we have a positive test in Tulsa from someone that traveled to Italy. We know it's in Oklahoma City because of the NBA players that were here. But I think everyone should assume that this virus is out and about in their communities to some degree. Yeah. So, um, man, we could talk about uh, coronavirus and COVID-19 probably all day. However, the entire rest of the world is talking about it all day. So maybe let's uh, give our listeners a bit of reprieve and talk about something else. Child did, Mar- the legislature, did the legislature meet, to week, meet this week? Yeah. It was a deadline week. It was a deadline week, and they ended early. They stayed late last night to get done. Um, was it last when night? When the House even finished business on Wednesday. Wednesday, that's so. right. That's right. They were, and then the Senate had business on Thursday, which is not unco- was, uh, not uncommon, right? They, next week, spring break, and they usually try to wrap up early before spring break because some of them like to travel with their with their children. Um, speaking of children, some, some stuff of consequence that was passed this week. Indeed, sure. yeah. Speaking of children, let's talk about child marriages. <laughs> um, so I, you know, just there, there's hundreds of bills that went through this week and we can never cover all of them, but I think we try to highlight ones that have, that have entered into the public discourse in a way that is important or unexpected. And this one to me came out of nowhere. I know we had representative Dunnington on the show a few weeks ago. I don't recall if he, if he mentioned this or not, but this bill really kind of caught fire was on the news and, and a lot of folks are talking about it. It would basically, I don't even know all the details, but um, it was it was Representative Dunnington's bill that would make some changes to the law that apparently our law allows for for people under the age of eighteen to get married if their parents yeah tell them it's okay or make them do it. Is that your so, understanding? So sixteen, seventeen year olds could get married with parental consent, but not fifteen uh, or younger. Yeah, not fifteen or younger. So this was, I think, a uh, a vestige of the so called shotgun the shotgun wedding. Right. Um, right. So oftentimes, I think these are uh, girls uh, and their, you know, whatever the relationship is between um, these these teenage girls and uh, the gentleman that's in question. Um, uh, somebody ended up uh, pregnant, 
and the thought process was that the best thing is for them to get married. Um, <clears throat> and I think this is, uh, you know, Representative Dunnington, this was brought to his attention. I think this might have been brought to his attention by some constituents, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, this was still happening in Oklahoma with an estimated 2,000 child marriages uh, per year. Wow. Uh, and especially from that um, lens, we have a high teen pregnancy rate statewide. And yeah. so one that the, would make sense that that mentality is still there. Yeah. One of the highest teen pregnancy rates in the country. Yeah. Top, top and 10 so, state. Uh, that's where, <laughs> that's funny. So that's where the, uh, that's where the, that's where the bill originated. I believe this would essentially, uh, I haven't looked at the text in a minute, but I, I and I think there've been some changes, but I think it just said it essentially means that under 18, um, you can't you can't get married. Your parents your parents can't can't marry somebody off when they're under the age of eighteen. Um, there was initially some opposition to this uh, from some uh, other lo- uh, legislators who felt like it was uh, taking away parental rights, parents' rights, because like parents always know like they're like the parent knows what's best for their kid. I'm like, I'm just sorry. Like it, I mean, I just I just can't. Like I don't even know what I to have- do it. I have two daughters, and I would prefer they wait till they're thirty-five. I think just. <laughs> and awkwardly, this bill—I mean, this bill—failed the first time. Right, right, yeah, it, yeah, it did. He now the second time it passed. I want to say like seventy with seventy-two yeah. votes on so, the floor. Yeah, so it failed, but there's a a parliamentary procedure that Dunnington used where he um, said he wanted to have it move to reconsider move to reconsider right and so they let him do that and so which means he could bring it up again he brought it up later in the week uh, i think on thursday after having talked to some folks and made a couple of amendments that appeased everybody but still it wasn't unanimous i mean 70 is pretty close but uh yeah so it, it passed on the second passage right i mean it's just it's one of those things that you're just you know Really, this is where we are? <laughs> well, and I think, you know, another important um, connector to this discussion, it was brought up by a friend of the pod, Effie Craven, uh, about the relatively high rate of um, young women in the sex trade in Oklahoma, yeah. right? And that this often, um, sometimes, uh, women under the age of 18 are forced into marriage as a guise to obscure. Um, or to hide the fact that they're actually um, sex slaves, right? And and then involved in that. And so this would help, presumably, to curb that. And and I think anything that shines light on, gosh, just, you know, really terrible issues like that that people don't want to think about, we got to think about it, and you got to find ways to, f- to fix it. And this, I think, is a step towards that. Absolutely. Well, and on a positive note of what came out of the legislature this week, um, our state employees have been fighting a long time to have a cost of living adjustment applied to their pensions. Uh, one of the challenges with that is that um, many retirees have had flat income, essentially, when it's time for them to get money from their pension. And so their dollar is not going further because the, the funding has been stagnant as inflation continues. And so the legislature in a bipartisan way made it happen for our state employees. And so now they'll get a percentage increase to make their dollar go further yeah. um, over time. Right. Is this, is this Billy, do you know, is this catching them up or is this just they'll get a cola going forward or is this like, 
going back 10 years or whatever since it's been since they had one. Like, will this will this catch them up for all the years they've missed? Or is this just going to bring them, like, starting next year, they'll get one for whatever the cola was this year? I believe this puts the cola in place. I'll have to do more digging to see if it is retroactive to um, catch them up. But I know for sure that going forward, the cola will be put in place. Hmm. Another bill that... Uh, we talked about last week as well that that passed out of the House um, with an amendment was House Joint Resolution 1027, right? So this is the bill we discussed last week, I think at length, that would make some pretty significant changes to the initiative petition process. It it did two main things. One, it it changed the the number of signatures required. Uh, it was originally going to be, or it originally is, a percentage of the. Uh, turnout in the previous gubernatorial election, and it was going to dramatically increase that. Um, and then the second thing it did was require signatures to be gathered um, as uh, evenly divided out among the state's congressional districts. So they amended it this week to pull out that uh, that numerical change. Uh, and so it passed off the floor, uh, and basically it would just require that the number of signatures gathered are evenly distributed among the state's congressional districts. We've seen other states pass similar legislation. However, I was, um, I will say impressed and maybe relieved, but a little bit surprised at the public pushback on this. There were a number of uh, editorials written around the paper, the Oklahoman, um, the, the Tahlequah paper, the McAllister paper, the Woodward paper. Uh, it really was across the state of people saying, Hey, this is another example of these guys trying to quiet your voice. Yeah, it's a power. I mean, it, there. You know, we've had the the speaker, the speaker, the uh, the pro tem of the Senate, Senator Treat, in response to the initiative position, the initiative petition to end partisan gerrymandering, said this was a power grab by out of state liberals. You want to talk about a power grab? This change that they're wanting to make to the initiative petition process to. Uh, try and uh, stop citizens from being able to amend the constitution or change the law when the legislature won't do it. It's just, uh, I get, I get my dander up about this one sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, uh, it's a big deal. I, I think it's odd and we may have talked about this last week, but I'm going to reiterate it just in case. So if it passes out of the Senate and I, I think we fully expect that it will, right. Um, It'll go on the ballot, and it'll be up to the governor for which ballot. And the timing varies here, depending when it passes the Senate, when the governor signs it. It potentially could go on the June um, state primary, or it could go on the November general election. But either way, it is there's a chance it is on the ballot, along with other state questions. And so this is, I mean, potentially this is a bill that could drive turnout of people that are opposed to it who might not always support things that the majority party wants, right? And so it could, right. I, I think there's a way this backfires on the legislature in a way. Well, and I mean, it's another reminder for our listeners that this is um, something that needs to go through the Senate side as well in the way that it went through the House side. Mm -hmm. And so there's still opportunity for our listeners to reach out to their senators about this particular tool being taken out of um, the toolbox for citizens to get engaged with their government. Yeah. It'd be really interesting. All right. Well, um, we, well, and I want to mention one other um, positive bill that came out of 
uh, the legislature, um, Representative A.J. Pittman got a bill off of the floor um, that was focused on um, infant and maternal mortality um, for women in America. Um, they die more frequently than women in other countries um, at childbirth. For Black women in particularly, um, regardless of income levels and regardless of other health factors, they're four times more likely to die at childbirth than any other um, group of women. Mm. And so this issue is something, especially as a uh, 30-year-old Black woman, it's it's something that's near and dear to my heart. And so um, one piece that uh, Representative Pittman was getting to in her legislation was um, getting at implicit bias that happens in the healthcare sector. Um, even me personally, I've experienced doctors not taking my concerns seriously, um, and it happens often. And so this bill would require Im implicit bias training for different health professionals, um, and it did pass the House floor. And so that's a huge positive to ensure that um, more people are getting um, adequate um, care. Yeah, when, sure. they, when they go to the doctor. So I have a question, Bailey. Do you yeah. know there was um, a couple days ago? I'll have to go back and find it. Somebody on Twitter, and I think it was after this bill passed. Somebody on Twitter said, "Man, a lot of members of uh, hashtag OK Ledge either don't know what implicit bias is or strongly bristle at the suggestion that they might suffer from it." Were there some fireworks on the floor when this was being debated? Any idea what that's talking about? That's what I hear. Um, and sometimes implicit bias and those conversations are misconstrued as someone um, calling somebody a racist or um, the the term um, uh, political correctness, right? Um, and so there's a lot of misunderstandings about how to address the issue. Um, because it was assumed to be a racialized thing when the reality is it's about how do we ensure um, that all perspectives are considered and that we're giving everyone um, equitable treatment and consideration, especially when it comes to the health of, of women. Um, we see a lot of, when it comes to um, misdiagnosis and maltreatment that happens um, to women of color um, and people of color in general more frequently than other groups. And a lot of it is is because a lot of concerns that are brought up um, are sometimes ignored. Um, and so this ensures that we're thinking about where our blind spots are when we're talking to people and that we're having a cultural competent lens um, applied to how we're giving services to different groups. Um, and so I think there just was some misunderstanding about that from, from many lawmakers. But um, I think um, Representative Pittman made uh, a great case and perspective, and that showed by um, the legislation um, passing on the House floor. That's outstanding. Yeah, it was a, it was a good bill. So the next stage in the legislative session this year, next week, are they meeting? Are they not for spring break? I feel like they're taking a break. They usually take a break for spring break. Um, I mean, 
I'm not going to be shocked if they take a break while we figure out the coronavirus. See what the uh, what the virus situation is. Well, and that's I mean I'm gonna you know put out a video for the uh, people not politicians campaign, but I'll say it here because I know there's some crossover in listeners. Um, Tuesday is supposed to be our hearing before a referee of the of the Supreme Court. It was going to be an in person thing at the Judicial Center. Yesterday they called and said um, it's going to be a, a conference call, basically uh, telephonic instead, uh, and so it shouldn't last that long. And I'll try to live tweet it or something, but. We will um, put out the, uh, the the information about that afterwards. Uh, so it's not an in-person thing. We were we were going to rally folks at the, at the Supreme Court building. That is off. Um, everyone, stay home, wash your hands, uh, and and try to stay healthy for a little while and let all this blow over. So, uh, and I think we're going to see that a lot. I think this really does um, have an impact, and and maybe we can end on this. But you know, there are a number of state questions. 810, mine, um, 807 uh, as well, one of the recreational marijuana ones, and any others that may still get filed. Oh, 809, the uh, the permitless carry-related bill um, that have yet to collect signatures, right? And so having this virus floating around and the cancellation of all these events and our you know legitimate concern about the public health really may have an impact on on the ballot process in a way that was not anticipated when we initially filed this measure back in October. Right. Uh, and so I think it's interesting when you see a microscopic virus directly affecting people's pocketbooks, um, the, 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 our democratic processes, all these things, um, we realize how interconnected in our, our economy. Civ- yeah. in the economy. Exactly. Right. Um, so what a, what a time to be alive. I mean, it is interesting as you watch, like, you know, as we see, you know, leaders at the state level, leaders at the federal level, as we're debating over policy responses, um, you know, uh, I listen to, uh, I mean, it's, I think I say it on the, I think I say it on the show all the time. I'm a progressive. I'm not like shy about that. We try to provide both, you know, we try to be nonpartisan here as an except as an for you and on the show. <laughs> i'm a i i i think i think we try we represent both sides of the issue there were there were several times this week that you said i think this is a republican position that i'm on board with um <laughs> it's true it happens it happens quite it happens frequently actually but mm-hmm. um you know i listened to uh uh, uh pod save america which is several Speechwriters from the Obama administration, they are not nonpartisan. They are, in fact, 100% partisan, and they would say that. Um, but they've, they put this, um, I think, really well. You know, coronavirus, like, coronavirus doesn't care what party you are. It doesn't care who you voted for. It doesn't care how really, I mean, I guess in some ways it cares how old you are, but like, there's, this is not something that you can, you know, pundit away Mm -hmm. right like you can't you can't hold a rally and say it's not going to affect you you can't say like it's a hoax you can't say like this is here and it's real and i think it's an opportunity um that it's something that's going to be very very um potentially trying for the country but it's an opportunity that i i hope we can use to come together and try to to do some good things i agree i think it'll be interesting to see in um in future years what the 
if this has any impact, like if this is a, a thing that cuts across our country enough that it affects our vaccine policy um, and some of those things in our state and in our country. So, all right, well, that brings us to the end of the episode. Bailey, thank you very much. Scott, thanks. Absolutely, thank you. Thanks for being here. Thanks Always for, a pleasure. Thanks for joining via FaceTime. Listeners, thank you for being here. I hope you are secure in your viral free bunker or that you are recovering well um, if you did get sick. Um, please remember that Let's Fix This is a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization um, who strives to educate and equip Oklahomans to be more engaged with their government. You can still do that from the comfort of your home. You can do it online. You can do it in email. You can make phone calls. Just because you got to stay home doesn't mean you can't be involved. Take this time to read a book, um, read some of the resources on our website, get up to date on the policies that matter to you, and make a plan for how to be involved in the coming weeks. As far as we go, uh, the show is produced by me, Scott Bailey. You can follow us on social media. Scott is at SC Melson. Bailey is at Bailey M. Perkins. And I am at Andy OKC. Follow Let's Fix This at Let's Fix This OK on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all of those things. Um, like our page, share the podcast with friends. Um, let them know this is a great resource. And feel free to... Uh, rate us on apple Podcasts as well because that helps other folks find it and with that i guess everyone uh, go wash your hands and have a good week <laughs>